Good morning. This is a scripture from 1 Samuel 20, verses 1 through 17 and 24 through 34. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I might hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, Good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for... You have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go safe in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of, your, of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, 
Do I not know that I have chosen the son, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul his father, "Why should he be put to death? What has he done?" But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. The word of the Lord. Just a reminder as to where we are. We are doing a series this fall leading up to, uh, leading up to Advent, and it's on the life of David, and it's called After God's Own Heart. And so the life of David, we see, has much to teach us about what it means to live life before God with a right heart, a heart of loyalty toward God, and how that expresses itself in great success and in abject failure. And so this morning's passage is, is actually a really interesting one. It, it comes on the heels of chapter 18, where, uh, uh, so it's chapter 17, David kills Goliath. Chapter 18, Saul says, David, you're going to come and live in, in my house. And so after that happens, um, the relationship between David and Saul um, becomes strained, to put it mildly. So twice, Saul throws his spear at David in an attempt to pin him to the wall, because he sees David as a threat and a rival. And after that doesn't work, Saul says, well, I will send David on a suicide mission. He wants to marry my daughter, Michael, so uh, I'll tell him to go collect, uh, this is kind of gross, but a hundred Philistine foreskins, uh, because, I mean, you've got to kill a hundred people to get that, and David comes back with 200. And so uh, he doesn't, he, he's not able to kill David on this suicide mission. And so then after that, Saul tells his son, Jonathan, David's best friend, he says, I order you to kill David. And Jonathan doesn't go for it, so, so that doesn't work. And then Saul sends uh, his thugs to kill David as he is sleeping in his bed. But his wife gets wind of it, and so she puts a dummy in the bed, and David escapes out of a window. And so when the people come in, they see it's the household god covered in goat's hair. And so David makes a narrow escape from a window in the middle of the night. And then after that, David flees to Samuel. And Saul sends three parties uh, to kill David. Each of them fails, and then Saul goes himself and he himself fails to, to capture David. So if anything has been established beyond a shadow of a doubt in the narrative of this passage so far, it's that Saul hates David and will stop at nothing to kill him. And then comes chapter 20, and we get this story that seems completely superfluous. We get 34 verses for David to learn something that he already knew. Saul really wants to kill you. So scholars have all kinds of theories. What is chapter 20 doing here? And one is that it's out of place. You know, in the process of copying 1 Samuel over the, cent- the centuries, a scribe somehow put something that belonged in chapter 18 here in verse 20. And so it, it was just sort of an accident. Another is that this is kind of an independent strand in the David tradition. And so instead of trying to integrate it and weave it into the previous narrative to make it seem really smooth, uh, that it was just plunked down here with, without an attempt to integrate it into the narrative flow. Even if it makes the story at this point kind of redundant and David and Jonathan seem clueless or hopelessly naive. But there's something else that's that's going on here. This is no 
accident. There's a reason this chapter is where it is. It is not to advance this plot line. David needs Jonathan to save him from Saul. The essence of the chapter seems to me to be not about Jonathan saving David, but David saving Jonathan from his father. That, that it's not David who needs rescuing at this point. It's Jonathan who needs to be rescued from his father. And ultimately, it's Saul who needs to be rescued from himself. And it's in this chapter we see relationships being tested. Relationships being tested. And in the Bible, whenever a test occurs, the point of that test is to reveal what's going on inside of someone's heart. And so we see a test this morning, a test of, of, of two different kinds of relationship. The relationship between two friends and the relationship of a father and a son. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, these two tests. The test of friendship and the test of a parent-child relationship. But before we get into that, we need to stop briefly at this, at this very important word that is really the center around which the whole of this passage turns. And it's a word, uh, you can repeat after me, chesed. Chesed. We'll just say chesed from here on out, uh, so we don't have to do with that. But it's, uh, if you were sort of transliterating the Hebrew to English, it's C-H-E-S-E-D. Chesed, or chesed. What is chesed? I'm glad you asked. Uh, Hesed is one of the most important words in the Bible. If I were to like sort of compare how important it is, I think hesed is to the Old Testament what agape is to the New Testament. Okay, agape is this unconditional love of God we see in the New Testament. Hesed is this, this, this love that we see in the Old Testament around which, which, which the really story of God and his people turns. And it's a word that occurs 250 times in the Old Testament. Almost half of its uses come in the Psalms. We know the Psalms are associated with David, so hesed is not just an important theological concept, it's a David word. And it occurs three times in our passage this morning, and you see it translated various ways, uh, loving kindness, steadfast love, or, or mercy. And, and it's one of these beautiful, expansive words that no one English word can capture. But one definition that I found that was really helpful was this, is that, is that hesed uh, is beneficent actions taken on behalf of a party with whom you have a, a relationship when he or she is in a position when they can't help him or herself, but you can. So hesed is loyal love that expresses itself in gracious action. And hesed is most frequently used of God. God has hesed for, for his people. And so it's most frequently associated with this relationship. It belongs to God, and it's expressed in God's relationship with humanity, but it also can be used as we see here, of two people. And so when, when we talk about hesed between two human beings, we're talking about a kind of loyal love that is rooted and reflected of God's never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. And so hesed means that God is not going to give up on us. And God is going to show up when we need God to. And so when we, we talk about human hesed, we mean that we're not going to give up on each other. And we're going to be there for each other in our hour of greatest need. So hesed is love that doesn't go away. It's love that doesn't give up. And it's love that shows up in tangible ways at the moment that you most need it. All right, now to the test, first test, the test of friendship. So in this first episode, we, we, we have this conversation between David and Jonathan. And the hesed of their friendship is being tested. It's a test for Jonathan. Will he be loyal to David or will he be loyal to his father, Saul? 
Right? This is what makes this story so interesting. It's, it's competing loyalties. And loyalty isn't loyalty until it has been tested. True test of friendship. Will Jonathan stick by David? Which then broadens out to will David stick by Jonathan? The immediate crisis, David knows uh, Saul wants to kill me. And Jonathan is unwilling or he's unable to see this for some reason. Okay, sure, he knows that the chapter prior, his father ordered him to kill David. But the last that we see of Jonathan, he says, I'm not going to kill David. And Saul swears. He says, he swears by the Lord. Okay, I'm not going to harm David. I'm not going to kill him. And so in Jonathan's mind, that settled everything. As far as he knows, his father has relented from his desire to kill David. And now David comes to Jonathan and, and he presents him with the hardest test that any friendship can face, that the test of confrontation. Right? He asks Jonathan a, a hard question. He says, tell me what I have done. What sin or what crime have I committed that your father wants to take my life? David says, tell me the truth. Either tell me the truth about myself or about your father. Right? And we can't have genuine friendships without confrontation and conflict. Because otherwise, our relationships just stay on the surface level. We have to be willing to go there, to, to face the possibility of disagreement with our friends. Because unless we can do that, we don't have hesed, and we can't really count someone as our friend. I think that's one of the many reasons that, that friendship is, is difficult for us in the, in the 21st century, right? Many of us are just by temperament, we're scared to death of confrontation or, or, or conflict. And I think in a lot of ways, like modern commerce caters to our desire to not engage in any conflict or confrontation with anyone, right? Uh, you can shop online. One of the beautiful things about shopping on Amazon is you never have to come in contact with another human being, right? They call this sort of frictionless transactions. Human interactions are full of friction. You have to communicate. People can mishear you or, or misjudge you, you know? So, so let's remove the friction, and life is smooth. Or you can chat with a customer service representative, you know, uh, on the other side of the world. We never have to hear their voice. Or, you know, we go to work, and we can talk about the weather or, or, or sports, but, but we never learn what our colleagues or our so-called friends think about what is true and what is good and beautiful and most valuable in the world. Right? We can't have friendship because we're not quite sure if they will pass the hesed test. And when confrontation comes, we're scared to death to find out because we're predisposed to think that it's just going to fail. But we need said if we're going to have genuine friendships. We, we crave the, the vulnerability that that brings, the intimacy that comes with knowing that when confrontation comes, when hard questions get asked, our friends aren't just going to run off in the other direction. And so we see from David and Jonathan that the true test of friendship is are we willing to seek the truth together, even if the answer is hard, even when it might conflict with some of our other loyalties. So it's the test of confrontation. And the other test we see in their friendship is this test of, of mutuality. Is their friendship a two-way street? Because right at this moment, David is in crisis, 
He is going to be running for his life very shortly. So he needs Jonathan to show him loyalty, to show him hesed. He says, and if you're not going to do it, just kill me. I'd rather die by your hand than your father's. And so Jonathan swears. He says, I will be loyal to you. I will show you hesed. I will be your friend. And he does it. But then Jonathan turns the table on David because Jonathan sees a day when, when his father is not going to be king anymore and David is. And he says, David, will you show loyalty to me and not just me, but my family? When the shoe is on the other foot, will you return the favor to me? Will you be loyal to me? Right, that's the second test of friendship is is it a mutual relationship one built on on mutual trust and mutual obligation because without mutuality we don't have a friendship we've all had you know so-called friendships where we quickly realize that it's sort of a one person give and the other person take relationship right and it, and it just doesn't work because usually as soon as we figure out that someone's just taking and taking and taking from us we realize that it's time to walk away. Or when we realize that, we realize that it's not actually a friendship. So here's David and Jonathan and the two tests of friendship, the tests of confrontation and the tests of mutuality. And they pass. But next we get to the test of the relationship between father and son, Saul and Jonathan. And the test of this relationship is the test of trust and the test of ambition. This is, you know, a truism that's to the point of cliche, but it bears repeating all relationships are built on trust. But there's no more trust important than the relationship between a parent and a child, right? We come out of the womb with this question embedded within us. Can I trust these people? Can I trust these people to take care of me, to feed me, to change me, to come and comfort me when I'm wailing in the middle of the night at the top of my lungs? And that trust is how we form healthy attachment to our parents and our caregivers. And it's that trust that from the very beginning, right, from the very first moments of our life, it begins to shape whether this is going to help or hinder us as we form relationships throughout the, trust, throughout the rest of our life. Can I trust this person, this primary person in my life? It's so powerful, that trust. And Jonathan thinks he can trust his father. He thinks that they have this close relationship. David says, why does your father want to kill me? And Jonathan replies, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. Why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. Denial is not just a river in Egypt, right? Jonathan trusts his father. And David's reply is basically, uh, your dad knows we're friends, and he hasn't told you that he wants to kill me because he's trying to basically protect you. And so Jonathan listens to David. He does something powerful. He listens to a truth that he doesn't want to hear. And he says, I'm going to put this trust to the test. And so he listens to him, and he agrees to this elaborate plot. We sort of skipped it in the reading, but there's a lot of arrow shooting, and I'll, re- I'll report to you. It's funny, because David says, shoot these arrows, and that'll be the signal, and I'll know whether your father wants to kill me or not. And then he does the arrow thing, and then they talk to each other anyways before he runs away. So it's, it's sort of like a, <laughs> it's like a, it's, you know, 
It's an elaborate plot that seemed unnecessary at the end of the day. But what good elaborate plot isn't? So anyways, uh, so he agrees to this test and he's going to communicate with David. And so he, because he's saying trust is not trust until it's proven by circumstances. And a test in the Bible, right, it's always about revealing what's going on in someone's heart. So Jonathan's test is to say what is in Saul's heart. He's going to find out, is their relationship as close as he thinks it is? Is it built on this honesty and integrity and open communication? Or is it all a bed of lies and deception? Right? Jonathan needs to know, can I trust my father if we're going to have an ongoing relationship? And for, it's you know, for that reason that he tells his dad the story that David has gone to Bethlehem. There's a, a family reunion and sacrifice, and so that's why he's not here at dinner. And so we hear the story, and, and there might be a, oh, why is, is the Bible telling us it's okay to lie and, and tell tales? And so that's not what's happening. But here's just an important biblical principle, um, that when people are seeking to take innocent, innocent life, they have no right to information that will empower them and enable them to take that life. So that's why it's okay to lie to Nazis when they come knocking on your door seeking to arrest Jews, right? The mo- that's the sanctity of life, that the most important thing is the preservation of innocent human life. Because without trust, there can't be a sharing of the truth. And so Saul hears this story, and he doesn't believe it for even one second. And he is enraged. Because, you know, Jonathan says, Saul fails this test of trust. Well, from Saul's perspective, Jonathan has failed the test of ambition. Right? That, that Jonathan does not want for himself what his father wants for him. Saul wants Jonathan to be king, to establish a dynasty. He wants his son to hold on to power. That's why Saul is so filled with rage that he uses these epithets against him. In another uh, translation, he, he says, Jonathan, you son of a whore. I mean, this is like awful language he is using about Jonathan's mother because he cannot believe that his son would choose something as stupid as friendship over kingship. Hesed over power. Our own lives and, and, and history, they're filled with stories of these fractured relationships between parents and children when the kids don't want what their parents want for them. A famous story we're coming up, you may have heard on the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther's father, Hans, left the family farm. He started this mining operation. It was very successful. Hans was a self-made man. He had made a better life for his children and his oldest son, Martin was going to, you know, he was sharp, so he was going to get Martin the best education that money could buy. Martin was going to become a lawyer, and he would sort of continue this climb up the social ladder. And Martin was a compliant child. He attended the best schools, but then suddenly in his first year of law school, he dropped out and took a vow to become a monk after he had this harrowing experience in a lightning storm where he had gotten scared and pleaded with God to save his life. And, and he said, God, if you save me, uh, spare my life, I will dedicate my life to serving you. And so he didn't die, so Martin kept his vow. And when Hans found out about this, he was devastated. Right? Instead of his son achieving success and wealth, he had taken a vow of poverty. His son had failed the test of ambition. My parents told me this story uh, growing up about a, a shift that had occurred in ambition amongst American parents. Now, I don't know where they got this and if it's true, but it helps make my point, so I'm going to repeat it to you uh, this morning. 
So they told me about this survey growing up that where parents would be asked, what do you desire most for your children? And it used to be back in the day that, that parents would answer that what they most wanted for their children was for them to be good. For them to be good. But then this shifted over the years. You can see a shift in, in, in the data and trends of what parents wanted most for their children. And so instead of being good, the shift occurred where parents wanted their children to be happy. Right? It used to be that parents wanted their kids to be good, but then they wanted them to be happy. And that's one of the great challenges for parents. What do we want for our kids? And what are we willing to do to get them to want for themselves what we want for them? Or as children, which each and every one of us are, how do we handle the responsibility of what our parents want for us, especially when that conflicts with what we want? Saul wants Jonathan to be powerful. And what Jonathan wants is to be loyal, to show hesed. Because Jonathan understands something about godly ambition that Saul doesn't. And this, this is what's so important. What Jonathan understands is that life does not consist in achieving your goals, but in keeping your promises, right? That's, that's a successful life. It's more about achieving, it's more about keeping your promises than achieving your goals. That's the good life, a life marked by ambition for hesed rather than ambition for glorification and exaltation of oneself or the family name. All right, so David and Jonathan's friendship, it was tested. Could it withstand confrontation? And was their commitment to one another a two-way street? And Jonathan and Saul's relationship is tested. Is it built on trust? And what happens when, when they find out that they don't want the same things? So friendship is tested and proven, and family is tested and fails. But this is, is the last point that I want to make, is that both of these tests of these relationships point to something beyond themselves. Right, to the one who was tested and proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. Jesus said, there's no greater love than this, that a man lays down his life for his friends. So Jesus isn't just our Savior or our Lord. He identifies himself as our friend. Right, what a friend we have in Jesus, as Katie just saying. And in our friendship with Jesus, we are confronted with the truth. Some hard truth about ourselves. Truth about our sin, truth about our brokenness, truth about the things that we, have abandoned, that we have pursued instead of God, the idols we have pursued, about how we've betrayed and abandoned Jesus, how we have not sought first the kingdom. So we're confronted with that truth, but then we are comforted with the truth of God's hesed. That Jesus himself is the very embodiment of God's always loyal, infinite, unstoppable, never giving up, undefeatable, always and forever love. Love that goes all the way to hell and back for us. Love that overwhelms us but seeks mutuality, seeks a relationship, invites us into a relationship of trust and obedience. Where Christ, our friend, lavishes his love and grace upon us and we respond with gratitude, seeking to obey his will. And share his love with the world. Right? So Christ passes the test of perfect friendship which he offers to us. And in Christ we see the perfect relationship of father and son. A trust that was tested at at the most painful hour as Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane and, and, and he sweated blood. But at that hour of testing it was revealed that that what the father wanted and Jesus wanted was the same thing to take away the sins of the world, that their trust and ambition were perfectly aligned. 
And so this morning, and each and every time we gather together in worship, is a time to test our relationship with Christ our friend and God our Father. To ask what's in our hearts. To be confronted with the truth and comforted with hesed. To ask, do we want for ourselves what God wants for us? Do we trust that what God has in store for us is better than what we could invent for ourselves? Do we want God's hesed to reign in our hearts and our relationships? And I pray that your answer to this question is yes, whether it's for the first or 1,000th time. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray.